All right, so good morning, everybody. How y'all doing today? Everybody great? Let me turn. Wait, let me start this over. Good morning. How is everybody doing today? Very good. Now it's on. Yeehaw. So, Thanksgiving is two days away. We're all gathered here. Glad y'all came. We're going to resume our journey through 1 Corinthians. And as I've said for a bit now, when we finish 1 Corinthians, um, we're going to start the book of Samuel. So that may probably probably when we come back from Christmas because we are not going to meet the week between Christmas and New Year's. That's my guess. But we'll, we'll just see how it goes. We just go with the flow here. And right now we are still in 1 Corinthians 15 because we're talking about the resurrection. And so I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do that. And we will continue to talk about that today. So I don't really have much in the way of announcements. We'll be here until, like I just said, the week between Christmas and New Year's when we won't meet. None of my classes will meet that um, week, neither Monday nor, nor Tuesday. And indeed, my Sunday class won't meet on Christmas Day. How odd. Or on New Year's Day. It's just going to be nice to have a, have a quiet week there. So um, I hope all of you are well. No, we don't have a quiet week because Patty and I are doing the Christmas Day service. It's our gift. It, it's our gift to the staff. We said, we'll do it. We'll do that 10 o'clock service, and I'll preach a message, and Patty will be a liturgist, and she's going to do the children's moment, and it's going to be fabulous. Patty will be Miss Rachel. She'll be Miss Patty as opposed to Miss Rachel. <laughs> Yeah, she's already Miss Patty, so that, that's going to happen Christmas Day, so that, that's pretty cool. We did it once before. We did it six or seven years ago, and again, when it all fell on a Sunday. And a lot of the staff is young, and they have kids, and that's really very generous. we're not, and we don't have kids. Are you going to broadcast it so I don't have to get out of my jammies? It'll, oh, it'll be online, yeah. But I will be looking for you that morning. <laughs> <laughs> you won't find me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it, it'll be a pretty small crowd, but a mighty one. Yeah. That's okay, because Christmas Eve, of course, will have thousands upon thousands yeah, right. upon thousands of people there, right? Right. Okay. Right? So, wow. So, do you have anything else today, Patty, before we get, we get rolling? Okay, well, hi, online folks. Glad that you were here with us. Um, so, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Tuesday, two days before Thanksgiving. And we're grateful for this fellowship. We're grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy to come together in this way, to study your word. And, and now, right now, to be talking about the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and our own resurrection as well. And we pray that you will help us to maybe unlearn some things that we brought with us to this, that we need to set aside and um, come to a deeper understanding of, of what Scripture really says and what Paul wants us to hear about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of ourselves. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we got to this big place in chapter 
chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, right around verse 44. That's where you come to this very, very difficult problem that some translators have done decent at, most have not done decently. And Paul is, I'm just going to go back to that just because it's, it comes to me. Um, people, when they read on their own, they're always flummoxed by what they find there. So here it is. So in, is it verse 44? Is that the right place? 1 Corinthians 15, 40. Yeah, 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That's how the NIV does it. The NRSV says if there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Both of those are unfortunate translations because what is happening in the Greek is that it is soma, body, sukikon, soulish. For the Greeks, our, we are soulish in the sense that this thing they called the suke is what animates us, makes us a living being. Okay, and Paul is contrasting this with what we are to become with, with our resurrection when we will no longer have a soma sukikon but a soma pneumaticon, the spiritish body. And so I told you last week that the translators of the Jerusalem Bible who weren't bound by tradition in their translation because I think it was, started, it was really a French translation to start with got it right when, when they contrasted embodied soul, which is how we are now, how everything is, versus embodied spirit. Because the whole part of beginning in verse 35, what Paul has been doing has been contrasting the body we have now and the body we will have then. And he did it with agricultural metaphors, the seeds, remember the seeds, things, and the rest of it. Trying to bring out the fact that our current body and our resurrected body, that there is continuity between the two. Right? But there is also discontinuity between the two because the body we have now, for one, decays and ages and crumbles and has all kind of bad things that happen to it. Um, whereas the resurrected body will be imperishable. And so he is making these contrasts and trying to help the Corinthians understand the truth about the resurrection of the dead. So that's right where we are. Okay, so um, after you've had a chance to reflect on this from last week, any questions or things? This is simply the way we are now. For, this is the Greek, ancient Greek way of describing how we are now. And this is Paul's way to describe what we will be. And you can see what he's trying to do. Right? We will no longer just be embodied. Um, the animating force of our life will not simply be embodied. So we will be embodied. We will still be material. I'll still be able to hug my granddad or my mom but we will be embodied spirit because the spirit is of God. Okay? And then he's going to talk about this a little bit more. Yeah? We will be persons just like we are now. 
you got arms and you got legs, right? Think about it. There's a new heavens and a new earth that arrive in Revelation. And why do we, why will we still need it if, if we just all went and were floating up in clouds like so much vapor or spirits, why would there be a new heavens and a new earth? Because we will have resurrected bodies that will need things like gravity, right? Will, and we will be able to do things like Jesus does. Last week, I think we looked, might have looked at Luke 24, where Jesus eats fish in front of his disciples. And he says, look, I, I, I'm, they think he's a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and blood. <laughs> Give me some fish. Let me show you. And so he eats the fish in front of them. Why does he eat the fish in front of them? So that they can see he is embodied. Resurrection means embodied. The Greeks had words for ghosts and shades and not embodied existences after death. But, the, but, but resurrection meant re-embodiment. Re-embodiment. And that's what we talk about with resurrection. Okay? So let's, let's read on a little bit, and Paul's going to carry this contrast forward, and I'm going to read it a little bit differently. I'm going to read it using these kinds of words instead of the words in the NIV. So, if there, so look at the end of verse 44, which is about where we stopped, because I, I devoted a lot of time to this last week. If there is an embodied soul, there is also an embodied spirit. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, soulish. I don't know, I should have looked up in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that the New Testament writers use. I don't know what word is there, because this is a line from Genesis about Adam. But Adam becomes a living being. He is, he is a living soul, animated the way you and I are now. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, and who do you think that is for Paul? Jesus. Now this is a contrast and that he makes a lot because the first Adam brought sin and death, the last Adam brings life and resurrection. And, and it's Adam is a man and Jesus is a man. So that's, that, that's what he's doing. And he does it elsewhere as well. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural came first. This, come, this came first. Then that is after the resurrection. That's all he means. The embodied spirit did not come first, but the embodied soul. And after that, then, in the correct order, the order of things matters, right? So Paul's been trying to press upon them the order of things, the way, the order in which things will happen. After that, then we will be embodied spirit. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. 
as was with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. That's you and me today. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. That's what we will be. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's us today, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That's what we will be. Now you might say to yourself, well, you know, gosh, he could have been a little bit clearer about this or the little pieces of this that don't make total sense to me. Well, that's okay, but I think you get the thrust of it, of what he's doing. When he begins with the seeds, works through the comparisons and contrasts, and ends up here, contrasting Adam and Jesus, because he wants the Corinthians to understand that as they are today is not the end of the story. That when they talk about being in eternity with God, it is in a resurrected state, a re-embodied state, an embodied spirit state, not as we are now. So he says to you, 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now all he means by that is the way we are now. He's choosing a few different words, and it, that verse has been much misused over time. But if you, if you start at verse 35 and read all the way to here, you can see what he's doing, I think. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Because this embodied soul body thing we got now is perishable. I can testify to that. This is not perishable. And this follows this on a timeline. Right? The per nor does the perishable inherit the imperishability. Now, before I go on, now there, there, there's a question that comes to people's minds, and you see it coming to their minds in other of Paul's letters. Because pretty much everybody, people fight, scholars disagree about this a great deal. Gosh, I'm kind of with those who think that these early Christians kind of thought Jesus was going to come back pretty soon. That it wasn't going to be some 2,000 years later and we'd still be waiting, but that he was going to come back pretty soon, which I, I really entirely get myself. I, I think that makes, makes, makes a lot of sense to me. But whenever Jesus does come back, there will be people who have not died and yet will need to be transformed. Does that make sense? Let's just say Jesus came back tonight and the resurrection of the dead immediately followed. And my mom was resurrected and my granddad was resurrected. And my third grade teacher, can't remember. Ah, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Pig, she was a great, she was a great teacher. She was a great teacher. She, she, she taught us to read using phonics, which was not the way the kids of my generation were taught to read. And by teaching us with phonics, she had a class full of really good readers, Mrs. Pig. So um, uh, <laughs> she will be resurrected. Now, the question is, well, what about, about those of us who just go to sleep tonight? What happens? What, what happens with us? We won't have died and Jesus is showing up. 
Are we, are, uh, uh, what, what, what's going to happen? So he writes, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to be dead when Jesus comes back. How would that be? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Oh, this is this great um, uh, chorus and, and, and bass aria in the Messiah. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. In a flash, in a flash. Mom's resurrected, granddad's resurrected, Mrs. Pig is resurrected, and I and Patty are changed. We trade in this for this, right in there and right there on the spot, in a flash. So we're all dead. No, nope, one have died. You would have, you have just sort of you will have managed to skip that. <laughs> right, really. You'll have managed to skip it. Why? Why? God can do what God wants, Evie. If the, if the okay. We're changed because how were we changed? It's as if we were had died and were then resurrected. We just skipped the de- the dying part. Because see, God God created everything there is out of nothing. God can do whatever God likes. Paul's point makes sense to me. I mean. Wh- there's going to be people alive when Jesus returns. Well, what happens to them? Are they all going to like drop dead and then be resurrected in the next moment? I guess that might have been the answer, but Paul says, no, that's not the answer. What's going to happen is we will all be changed. And I love the way he writes it. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishability and the mortal with the immor- with immortality. Okay, what he's saying is in the new heavens and the new earth, in the fully manifested kingdom of God, these kind of bodies won't work. Why won't they work? What's the lifespan of one of these things <laughs> of our bodies now? A hundred years? Are they, are they bodies suitable to spend eternity with God? No, they're not. So they have to be traded in. <laughs> traded in like a car. Traded in on, <laughs> on, on an imperishable body. If you stop and think about it, it's all really quite logical, it just takes a heck of a big imagination. And you have to unlearn a lot of things that you bring to this, a lot of pious things you've picked up over the years about us heading off to heaven and playing little harps and singing hymns all the time and all that kind of stuff. And listen to what the Bible is telling you. Um, In 1 Thessalonians, which I'm teaching now in chapter 4, that whole chapter, not all of it, but most of it is about people's fears that well, grandma's going to be left out because she died, she missed this Jesus thing, he's going to come back, and she is out of luck. And Paul says, no, she's not out of luck. She's not out of luck. Those who preceded us, 
those who died before all this happened, they will precede us to go up and to welcome Jesus, you know, into the, this new heavens, new earth with the arrival of Jesus and, and the holy city as it were. So that's all, that, that's all that's happening here. Paul just is accounting for people's obvious question, well, what if we haven't died? What then? What then? What about the newborns who haven't been born yet? Well, the newborns who haven't been born yet. God is the giver of life. They will be changed. Into what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe God will decide 22 years old or something. I, I, I don't know. You know, we, we pack, that, that's why what I, you know, the Bible, that's why my advice to people is always pack it with much goodness as you can imagine. Well, as much goodness as you can imagine and just let that be your way forward. Trust God. You know, how, how is it we are made right with God? By figuring all these things out? By passing a test on all the doctrines around the resurrection of the body and the Christology and all the... No! By putting your faith in Jesus, putting your trust in Jesus. And with these kind of questions that we rightfully have, understandably have, we have to trust Jesus. It's kind of like people say, what happens to me when I die? I say, ah, Paul says he's going to be with Christ. Period. Enough for me. I don't need to know anything else. You know, people ask me, do dogs go to heaven? I say, sure, but really being with Christ is enough for me. I don't know, just pack it with goodness. If dogs going to heaven is part of what makes that seem wonderful and spectacular to you, fine, do that. What the mistake the Corinthians make is that they deny their resurrection. And thus they, will, they undercut the whole thing. Which we're going to talk about when we get to the end of, chapter, of this chapter. They just undercut the whole thing. Because look what Paul says going forward. Oh, verse 54. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable, and the mortal with more immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has sw been swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? God's victory. Jesus' victory. That, that's a line from Isaiah chapter 25, which looked ahead to the day. Turn to Isaiah 25, why don't we? 25? Yeah, 25, 6 to 8. I'll give you a minute because I kind of cheated and wrote it down and put a bookmark there already. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. So this comes from a time about 700 years before Jesus. In our time frame, that's 200 years before Christopher Columbus landed on that island in the Caribbean, right? 700 years before Jesus. 
That's where these words come from. Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, that is for, for the Israelites, the Jews, that's the center of God's work. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a re feast of rich food for whom? All peoples. Circle all. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. What do you think a shroud conveys? Death. Sure enough. What do they do when Patty likes to watch, and I watch them with her because I like them too. Murder mysteries. He likes a good show where there's a murder right at the beginning. And they're going there and the body's laying there by the seashore or whatever. And they've got the shroud pulled up over the body, right? Yes? Nope, talking about all peoples. The whole, st the purpose, the reason God came to Abraham was that all humanity would be reconciled to God. He won't force somebody to do it, but it is about, well, just think of John 3.16. For God so loved what? Whom? The world that he gave his only begotten son. So, verse 7. On this mountain he, God, will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace when from all the earth the Lord has spoken. So I always, I think the all needs to be read, read, very, be read very widely. And that business about wiping away the tears, you see that where? In Revelation chapter 21, the new heavens and new earth arrive, tears are no more. So, make your way back to 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you left a little something, something there to help you make your way back. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death will not touch us again. The story is about our life, a life after death, and then our resurrection, our life after life after death, our re-embodiment, but not simply as we were. That doesn't make any sense. Can't be that. It's going forward. We are embodied spirit. Um, you know, sometimes people will wonder, well, how many people in the Bible are resurrected? Only one. That's Jesus. There are stories of people who are resuscitated. That's Lazarus. Lazarus is resuscitated. He is not resurrected. When God brings, when Jesus brings Lazarus back to life, it's literally back, back to life. Lazarus is going to go home. He's going to grow old. He's going to die. 
and then one day be resurrected. It's, it's that resuscitation. There are a few other stories like that. There's, there's the, um, the resuscitation of Tabitha. They are about bringing back to life. They're not about resurrection. Resurrection is about passing through death to a life after death to a life after life after death where death will be no more. Because God's victory over sin and death has been won. Paul writes in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. The only reason death is in the picture is because of the choice that the humans made in the Garden of Eden to rebel against God, to do the one thing God told them not to do. And they have to leave the garden and do not have access to the tree of life. And you meet the tree of life again where? In Revelation 22. Oh, it all ties together. Scott? Yes. 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 If I spread those ashes in the ocean. Yes. What is there do we do we think that God needs help with this? What do we what state let's take the Apostle Paul. That's my my favorite example. What state do you think his body is in today, two thousand years later? He's soil somewhere, right? Well yeah, but he's probably No, no, he's probably soil. What about people who were vaporized in the World Trade Center? Are they, are they just like, oh, well, too bad, so sad? No, God created everything out of nothing. God makes these promises. God is the great promise maker and the great promise keeper and does not need our help. Does not need our help. Again, the question is, will you trust God with this? And the read the evidence for the reason that you should is what? Jesus' resurrection. Every time I ask in that tone of voice, I'm looking for Jesus' resurrection <laughs> at the end, right? That's the linchpin. It's the evidence of the whole thing. So, Paul writes, after we've tried... Ah, let me start in 54 again. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the, immortal and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Mocking death. Mocking death. Death does not win. In the book of Revelation, you know what happens to death? This is just to show you how many metaphors there are in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, everywhere. What happens to death? Death is thrown into the lake of fire. And what does that mean? It means that death is gone. That's what fire does. Fire consumes things. Death is gone. And here Paul is mocking death, borrowing a verse from the book of Hosea and changing it just a bit himself. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law for Paul is what helps us to understand what sin is. The law is like a speed limit sign. It changes things from driving unwisely fast to breaking the law. That's all he means. But the sting of death is sin. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. 
verse 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. Us, you notice, gives us the victory. Jesus' victory, God's victory, is our victory. Jesus' victory, God's victory, is the Corinthians' victory, and they don't get it. Gives us the victory. Gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know all this challenges your imagination, and I know a lot of it is stuff you might not have ever heard, but that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. It just, uh, somewhere along the way, we lost a lot of this as Christians. And though they're still carried in the creeds, the last line of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the resurrection of the body, right? And the life everlasting. Well, that's, that's 2,000 years old, nearly 1,800 years old. That's our body. So it's there in the creeds. We shouldn't have lost it in a practical sense, but we kind of did. We kind of did. That's why for almost 20 years I've been surprising people so much. They go, what? Do you think it's because this is so hard to understand? I mean, we're 2,000 years later, and I, I can't even imagine somebody who is brand new to this new Jesus movement who is going to understand this at all. I, I looked up just to mm -hmm. see who people thought delivered this letter. I don't know how you feel, Scott, but it said most scholars think it was Titus. What kind of what kind of job did he have explaining this to people? See, I don't think I don't think this is hard to understand. I think it's hard to embrace. Because it's a simple proclamation. The proclamation is what? That death does not hold us. That just as Jesus was resurrected, so shall we be resurrected. And to accomplish that means trading in the body we have today that is a mess and dies, right? For one that doesn't. Period, paragraph, end of story. Yeah, but Paul is trying to use illustrations and stuff to try to help them get it because what it challenges is our imaginations. It challenges, well, that's just, that's just ridiculous. It's not the only thing Paul had to contend with. He would show up in these towns and try to convince these folks, particularly the Gentiles, that this God named Jesus got himself crucified. That's wacky too as far as anybody in that time you know, was concerned. You know, you, you told us that in class on Sunday that Sunday was the National Day of Absurdities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These are absurd things, really, in the way the world tends to view everything, but that doesn't make them untrue. And that's why I always invite people who come to this and they're just going, oh, come on, this is just ridiculous, to spend a little bit of time with lay treatments of what we know about the quantum world, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, the tiniest particles that, this, that God's creation is made up of. And you'll read that and you'll go, well, that's just crazy. It can't possibly be that you could split an art particle in half, each of the halves go in two different directions, you tickle this one and this one laughs. That's crazy. But it's why our computers work, right? 
So there are, you, you, I remember reading once, this was from Fleming Rutledge. She was wrote or she was being interviewed. She was, she's an um, Episcopalian priest now and scholar, now, now retired. But, but she was being challenged about the resurrection. And the person who challenged her said, well, look, Fleming, my daughter, she has a PhD in molecular biology and she's an MD. How do you possibly expect her to believe something like this? And Fleming's response was perfect. Well, I don't know how large your daughter's imagination is. There we go, see? We, make, we want to bring all this down and make it all fit into the way we conceive things have to be, right? Instead, you have to let it blow your mind. And the evidence for why you need to let it blow your mind is what? Why do you need to think about this? Because Jesus was resurrected. If that didn't happen, you can forget all this. Right? If that didn't happen, we've believed a lie, Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 15. Go find something better to do with your time. If, it, if Jesus wasn't wrecked, resurrected, but Paul spends a long chapter saying if, if it's true, and it is, that Jesus was resurrected, then so, so shall we be resurrected. And he mightily tries to get the Corinthians to understand. Yes. So they weren't getting this subject cold. They had been discussing it. I'm sure some And Paul himself had been there yeah. and taught it. So and and they were they were drifting away as it were. So he was trying to answer trying to pull them back in. Yeah. But they had been discussing it That's right. They wrote to him. And they and, and they arrived at answers that seemed very reasonable to them. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not a reasonable thing. It's not. Not really. I mean, it's like, what? It's like the we're about to do Christmas. God is born to a young woman in Galilee? Really? That's, that's kind of crazy. Well, but it's true. Paul would show up in Athens or Corinth and they'd say, oh, how silly a God to get himself crucified. And Paul would say, well, maybe, but it's true. It, Else, I can't quote the place. I think it's earlier in 1 Corinthians. He says, yeah, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Of course it's foolishness to them. But it's true. But it's true. This is who God is. It's true. And you better have a big imagination if you really want to enjoy the riches that God is pouring out on us. Did I hand over here? Doug. Elijah is, was taken up to heaven in a chariot. And so Doug's question is, has he already crossed over into embodied spirit? And I would say, if you ask me, and I don't have a clue, I would say no. Right? Even Elijah is awaiting Jesus' return. 
it's it's Jesus. Do I have that that slide? What slides do I have? There we there we go. How about this one? Here we go. Boom! Second coming of Jesus, the resurrection, the judgment, all of that, the arrival of the heaven, holy city. Boom! Everything, which is a metaphor. But it's all about Jesus coming here. It's about the restoration of this world. Why? Because with, we will have resurrected bodies and we need a world upon which to enjoy them with God, with Jesus, and with one another. And that lasts for eternity? That lasts for eternity. Not something we can really conceive of, is it? No, we can't. You'll, you'll just make, you'll make your blind mind blow up even fat more so. We can't really conceive of that. Um, and in a way, when you come to faith in Christ now, you're stepping into eternity. Because you see, the age to come arrived with Jesus 2,000 years ago. We just live in these in-between times. When the age to come and the age of old are still with us at the same time. And we just await... I call it the full manifestation of the kingdom of God and the end of the present age, which is characterized by sin and death and the enemies of God. So I, I think, you know, time is such a funny thing. I mean, it's, it's, what does eternity mean? How about if we stop thinking about eternity as a timeline goal and think of it being the person, Jesus, that we will simply be with Christ and be with one another in a world that is not marred by sin and death and envy and lust and greed and the rest of it because sin and death will have been swept away. Yes? Paul was a very... He didn't have the background that we have now. Well, he was grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures in ways that you and I aren't. He was a Pharisee. So he was a very learned man. Not only was he learned in um, the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what constitutes our Old Testament, he would have been learned in the, in the Greek writings of the day and the rest of it. So however learned a person could be in that time, Paul is probably, probably one of those, those, those persons, right? So. All of this stuff that he works out with God's inspiration begins in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right? So he quotes what? He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Hosea. Right? He could, um, we just did Thessalonians. We were looking in Acts, to the story of Paul in Thessalonica. Paul says he would go to the synagogue on Saturday and he would reason with them using the scriptures. What scriptures? The only scriptures they had, the Old Testament scriptures, the scrolls, to help them see that the story of Jesus, not just a story, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what had come before. So when you come to the Gospels and, you, and Jesus says, you know, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. 
every little bit. He is the fulfillment of what God had been doing for 2,000 years. But was Paul a genius? Yeah, by my book. That's why he rose so far in the ranks of Judaism and Phariseeism and said he went to Jerusalem to under, he's always not from Jerusalem, traveled to Jerusalem to study under one of the most prominent rabbis in the first century, a man named Gamaliel. Okay, so. Scott, just one other thing, that N.T. Wright book on Paul. Yes. One of, the, one of the lessons that I took away from that was he was also a zealot and he didn't do anything halfway. He was 150% <laughs> behind whatever he was doing. He was A++++++. Plus, 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 plus. Yeah. Right? Smart. You can yeah. see that in his writings. Yeah. He is, and in what he did. He was A++++. Plus, 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 plus. Yes. But you can be A++++ plus, 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 and still be humble and gentle and compassionate. But just, he was relentless in this preaching of the gospel and trying to help these communities of believers become what God hoped they would become, what God hopes we will become, even here at St. Andrew. So look at 57. He says, but thanks be to God, he gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yay, yay, yay. Our victory over sin, our victory over death. Death will not hold us. And what does he write? in verse 58. Therefore, this is the great therefore at the end of the chapter, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you away from this, as had obviously been happening in Corinth, to go to Don's point, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And how do we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain? Because we know how the story ends. God is the great promise maker. God is the great promise keeper. Jesus' victory over sin and death through his faithfulness all the way to the cross, all the way to death, even death on the cross, means that what we do can never be in vain. There's a young, she used to be young. Then we all used to be young. She's older now, but there's a woman who wrote an excellent book on Romans, and she said her view of Romans was that it was a defense of God. And you might say, well, why, did people, why would Paul need, feel like he needed to defend God? Because some of these promises that God makes in the Hebrew Scriptures are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And Paul and his contemporaries live in a time when the Romans are in charge, in charge, in charge. And it would be easy to think, well, I know God made all these great promises, but perhaps they're just never going to be kept. And so Paul writes at the beginning of the book of Romans, look, let, let me show you this gift that is Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness of God. This is God's promise keeping revealed to you in the person of Jesus. It's real. It's true. It's true. It's true. God has done it. God has done these things he promised long ago. 
And then Paul has to work out with how it is that Jesus was resurrected first, but nobody else. And stay true to the Jewish scriptures. And stay true to what Jesus and God um, inspired him to understand. And so he, you see in his writings this between the times idea. So he writes, we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. And we are still the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. And obviously, given the amount of time that Paul spends with the resurrection of the dead in response to the Corinthians and what they've, even, what they've either asked him or what he has been told is happening in Corinth, illustrates that he understands that this underlies the whole thing. Okay? So, one thing I brought... So, first of all, before I go on, I'm going to take a drink of water and see if there's questions. I'm getting worked up here. Sandy. Yes. And if you listen in this holiday season to the Messiah, you'll hear those. You'll hear those. Because what the Messiah is, the Messiah is this entire, it was called a libretto, the entire setting of the story of God's work in and through Jesus and Jesus, um, and all of it comes from Scripture. And a man whose name I can't remember now, but I should put the whole put the whole thing together. Not Handel. Handel wrote the music. Somebody else put the whole libretto together, and it begins with Isaiah 40, and goes all along the way. And these words are part of it right here because guess what? Those words are really what it's all about. Sin and death have to be defeated by God, because they resulted from what the humans did in the garden. And God has been in a relentless pursuit to fix what went wrong in the garden. And so, and where does, and, and where does the Messiah end? In the last great chorus, worthy is the Lamb. Revelation 5, right? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it's just, just, Awesome. One time, years and years and years ago, we were looking at the book of Revelation and Chris Crook, who was then the choir director, um, said he would have the choir sing, Worthy is the Lamb, like the perfect place when those verses were being read from Revelation. It was, for me, it was like so powerful, <laughs> so cool. So yeah, when you hear the Messiah this year, it's telling the story all the way through. And every word in it comes from Scripture. King James, obviously, because it was written in the, eight, in the 16th century, 17th century. Okay, anything else? Yes. I'm not sure I want to do this, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm, let, let, let me tell, she says, I'm not sure I want to do this. But this is the place to do it, whatever it is. This is the place. This is a safe place. About eight years ago, I was going through a bunch of tests. 
and I can't remember which test it was, but it was the one where they put you through the tube. Yes. And yes. They read everything. Yeah. Well, they put me through the tube, and I died. Yeah. And I was pretty stupid, and I said, "Okay." It was a beautiful angel came. I mean, it was gorgeous, more than an angel. And then I said, "Okay, take me if you want me, but if not, give me something to do." Well, then. Right then and there, this gorgeous, everything was gorgeous, dove came up, flew away, and the angel left. Well, about, after I got through all this, about eight weeks later, I was asked to help start a new church. And I think that God had asked me to do that. So I couldn't say no. <laughs> and I've been told other stories like that. Your story is not unique. Okay, and people have, I don't know what to make of all the near-death experiences people have because they're so varied, I don't know, but you, but you came back, you came back with us. Paul says, and for Philippians chapter 1, he says, you know, I think the executioner might be coming for me, and I'm ready to be with Christ, but, you know, really, I think he's got more work for me to do, so I think I will survive this. A little different than your story, but this, it's the same, same idea. That, that you were, you came back to life, right? You were resuscitated in that way, even if nobody did anything to you. And it's a beautiful story. So again, it, it challenges our imaginations, right? So when you come to scripture and you have an angel named Gabriel visiting a young woman named Mary in this no account, dusty, out-of-the-way place at the remotest regions of the Roman Empire, you need to bring a big imagination. You need to stop and contemplate the incarnation of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And 14 verses later, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What? What? You know, Christians are the only ones who make these claims. Nobody else does. We do. And the reason we've been making them for 2,000 years is because... Resurrection. There we go. <laughs> you can either answer it's true or Jesus was resurrected. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So, at the end of this chapter, you know, I have a great deal, you've gathered, I have a great deal of respect for um, Richard Hayes. He's one of the top scholars on um, Paul in the world. He's also an ordained Methodist elder. So, interesting man. So he offered up seven different thoughts about chapter 15 to preachers and teachers and us, I think. And so I thought we would talk about them. The resurrection of the dead is necessary in order to hold creation, creation, back here off here, and redemption together. God creates everything there is and pronounces it good, and then the humans wreck it. And God sets about to fix it, to rescue us from ourselves. And that story comes to its culmination, not just in the story of Jesus, but in the restoration 
of the world and of our relationship with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So it, second, in a culture that evades telling the truth about death, that, my friends, is quite so, the teaching of the resurrection comes as a blast of fresh air. We do live in a culture that doesn't know what to do with death. As Christians, we know that death does not hold us. We don't have to pretend that death isn't real. We don't have to come up with some nice, pious, sweet, sentimental little things around death. We know that death does not hold us, that we will be resurrected. And that should change our perspective upon life, illness, death, everything. That's why having this big imagination is so important. So you don't rob yourself of the hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus and our own promise of resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead affirms the moral significance of life in the body. We live in a time when there are a lot of people who seem to really think that their bodies don't really matter very much. Not really. What really matters about them is their inner spirit and stuff like that. And, and they can do with their body any old thing that they want. And that is, the resurrection affirms the goodness of our bodily existence because this is a bodily existence this is a bodily existence our bodies matter they are when god made the world in genesis 1 at each step what does god say about it that it's good it's good it's good it's good it's good it's good and it's easy, I think, to lose, to, to, to lose sight of that, in part because, you know, our bodies do decay, and they do get old, and they quit working right, and they break down, and you lose your hair, and all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> you look at pictures of yourself, Okay, I'm getting getting too, you know, yeah, yeah, you get, you know, some of you know what I'm saying here, right? So, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body tells us that we are whole, let me do this, we are whole beings. Um, for the Greeks, you see, in Plato, we have these souls and they, and our bodies are vessels for those souls, and those souls fall out of the, um, let me say the world of forms into our bodies and that when we die our soul then ascends upward and what happens with the body doesn't matter because it's just an earthen vessel for our soul during its time down here that platonic plato view of things has infected a lot of christian thoughts we we're the hebrews didn't think that the Hebrews said, no, we are whole, 
We are whole creatures, body and soul. We're born that way. We die that way. And so what does death do? What's a key part of death being the enemy? It separates us from our bodies. So what, what does this do? What does the resurrection do? It puts us back together. Puts us back together. In addition, death is the enemy because it, because it creates separation from loved ones and so on. I can't hug my mom right. I can remember my mom, but I can't hug my mom. But one day I will. One day I will. I remember coming across a Jewish. It was a little. It was this is. It was a Jewish, Jewish Saturday school. <laughs> Jewish Jewish um, uh, synagogue comic book for teaching little kids, and they were teaching about the resurrection of the dead because it is a Jewish idea. The Christians didn't invent this idea, the, re the, the resurrection of the dead. And in it, there was this little um, girl is racing through, and she sees like a wagon with this enormous grape on it, I guess, representing, you know, the abundance in the new, in God's restored kingdom. But it, then, then her, it's like she's in a car, and she pulls up to a driveway, and coming out of the house are her grandmother and grandfather who had passed away, right? And she would be reunited with them. God tells us that we are to love God and love others. Those are the two most important commandments of all, Jesus said. Those commandments don't end with our death. There is still love God. There is still love others. And I believe very much that our capacity love to, to love will be magnified in a way that we can't even imagine now when we are resurrected. Okay? Thoughts, questions? The moral action to which the resurrection calls us may put us at odds with the established powers in our society. The resurrection of Jesus, our own resurrection, our own proclamation about this puts us on a different course than the course that the world would put us on, upon. You know, um, we are not people who want to follow the culture. The culture can take us in all sorts of bad directions. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to follow the culture. We're here to lead, to proclaim. And that often results in a lot of confrontation and challenge um, because the truth of the resurrection leads us to see the world differently. And I absolutely believe the truth of that. The resurrection binds us to Israel. It's a Jewish story. 
to go to the earlier point, it's a Jewish story. It begins in earnest with Abraham, this rescue project, and goes all the way through the Old Testament, which is tragic because they, they, did, they, just, they can't be the people God needs them to be, wants them to be. And so God provides a faithful Jew who will be true to the law, and his name is Jesus. And he will enable the keeping of the promises that God made centuries before. So, Patty and I just, and some of you have been to Israel. Patty and I just got back from Israel. It, we are bound with um, Israel and the Jews in this way because their story is also our story. Which would mean that if you had Jews in the World Trade Center, they would be out of luck, which just doesn't, that can't be right. So, but the, but remember what he said, what I said to him, we were talking about how far Lior was getting in his, you know, with Christianity and all this stuff. And I said, to him, well, you know, Lior, at some point you're going to have to confront the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, Oh, Scott. <laughs> if, you know, if you know him, you know what I, oh, Scott. You're right, because that's, that, that, that's, that's it right there. That's the whole linchpin right there. I said, yeah, Lior, that's it. And you're going to have to confront that one day. Um, well, but wife, they talk about it and stuff, but, you know, and people, most of us here grew up in a Christian world of some sort, right? He did not. He grew up in a Jewish world. His grandparents were, were, were pioneers in the kibbutz in Israel. And him embracing Jesus, Messiah, and resurrected, and Lord, um, there are a lot of implications to that. And it's one of the reasons I think Jesus will meet people on the other side of the grave. God's purpose is to bring people in, not to keep people out. And Paul says, I think Paul says virtually the same thing in Romans 11, but it's quite controversial. So thank you for that, Patty. Okay, number six. This should have been almost number one. All Christian proclamation must be grounded in the resurrection. And if people don't understand or we have a charge to help them understand, because it is the linchpin. Jesus' resurrection is the evidence for why any of us should devote any time at all to this. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, as Paul writes in verse 20 or so of 1 Corinthians 15, then we are to be pitied because we've believed a lie. 
I don't want to believe a lie. You don't want to believe a lie. Paul doesn't want to believe a lie. If it's a lie, I'll find something else to do on Sundays. But it's not a lie. It is the truth. And the world may not want to hear it for all. I don't, I don't see, I don't think it is lack of understanding that prevents people from embracing Jesus or embracing the resurrection of Jesus. I don't think it's that. I think it's an unwillingness to pick up the challenge of living a different life. That's what I think it is. You know, if, if you're going to embrace Jesus and embrace Jesus' resurrection and put your faith in Jesus, it ought to lead you to a different life than the world wants to lead you to. And because it does, if you, will, if, if, if you will hear it. So all Christian proclamation must be grounded in the resurrection. Just look at all of the space Paul in this letter devotes to the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection body and all the rest of it. He knows that if the Corinthian Christians can't, can't come to this, they're just going to drift all apart. You know, heresy is a word we don't use very much anymore and terrible things are done in the name of heresy, but heresy is a word that's misunderstood. Heresy is a purely intramural word, so like I couldn't be a Muslim heretic because I'm not Muslim. It's a purely an intramural word. And what a heresy is, it's not just any old mistake. Goodness, how many mistakes must I make in the course of teaching all these classes? day in, day out, week in, week out. A heresy is a mistake in theology which creates a distorted and fragile Christian faith that will not stand. And that's why most of the great heresies, most of the significant heresies in the history of the Christian church revolve around Jesus. Because everything Christian revolves around Jesus revolves around our understanding of the triune God. That's where all of it is. And um, the undergirding of our confidence in this is the resurrection of, of Jesus. I mean, why, how did it come to be that there's Christianity at all? Why did these people claim that Jesus had been resurrected? Why did they claim that Jesus was Lord? Why did they write of him as Lord and worship him as Lord? He got crucified for goodness sakes. They knew what happened to would-be messiahs who got crucified or got their heads cut off. That was the end of it. People would find some mother horse to back. So how do you even explain the emergence of Christianity? It's one of just historically as historians how do you explain the emergence of Christianity? Islam's easy because Islam was birthed at the end of a sword. Not Christianity. Christians aren't in a, have no state power for three centuries. Okay. Here's the last one. I like this one. The resurrection calls for conversion of the imagination. You know, Paul says in Romans 12, now we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds 
so that we can understand what the will of God is. What's pleasing to God? What is good and pleasing and mature? And that takes imagination. Our brains need to be, in a science fiction-y sense, need to be kind of like rewired when the imagination's exploding outward. What do you mean incarnation? What do you mean? What do you mean God is born to, to Mary? What, what do you mean she's the Theotokos, the bearer of God? What do you mean Jesus actually won on the cross? Look at it, he's crucified, beaten, dies. What do you, what do you mean he won? But he did, but he did, you see? It takes a big imagination and we, we grow up with it and we get used to it all and the sad truth is, and we're all in this together, me with you, you with me, so much of it really goes in one ear and out the other, one eye and out the other eye. Because we, we well I know what this is all about. Sure, I've spent my whole life. I've been in church every Sunday, I know what this is all about, when in truth we don't until we really take the time to stop verse by verse by verse and confront what Paul says, like you have done now for <laughs> quite a few weeks with regard to chapter, chapter 15. So, anyway. So, when we come together next week if you have questions or things you want to talk about from today because I notice it's 115 so I do need to close up bring them back next week we will move on to the final chapter of 1st Corinthians and whenever we finish that we will begin a journey through the glorious book of Samuel which will have be the stories of Saul and David and Goliath and the rest and I will have maps and photos because I have a screen, see? That's what I never had before. I'll have a maps and timelines and, and photos of these places today and illustrations. It's going to be fun. Because I, I love the stories. The stories of David, in my view, are the best written stories in the Bible. I don't know who wrote them, but they are really often just like, wow. They're almost like little mini novels. But they're true. So, anyway, Patty, do you have anything for us today before I close this in prayer? Okay, well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, oh, convert our imaginations. Help us participate in that project. So that we see the world differently. We see the world through eyes of wonder at who you are and what you've done. Setting aside the limitations that we're inclined to put on you, the little small box that we want to make you fit into. Help us tear that little box to shreds and come to you wide-eyed ready to see the glories of your redemption and salvation and your love of us all. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. <laughs>